Tuesday, April 28th, 2020. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode number four of the 5049 Records Corona Guest. Welcome to it. During the entire duration of uh, this quarantine, I'm going to be putting up a new episode every week, every Monday, uh, with questions from you, the listener. Every week, a guest and I are sitting down. We are sourcing questions from social media, from the web, and we are sitting down to answer them. Today on the show, it's me and producer Randall Dunn. Before we get into it, I just want to apologize for the, uh, the lateness in posting this episode. Like I just said, I mean to put these up every Monday, but we did have problems with audio and I wasn't able to get it fixed until last night, uh, Monday. So it's a day late and I apologize for that. The other thing I would say up front, um, as I've said on, on episodes in the last few weeks, is I'm not really doing big intros. Uh, we are starting the show pretty much right out of the gate. This was recorded just this past Saturday. Uh, for those of you that don't know Randall Dunn, uh, I don't, you shouldn't meet that many of you. He's pretty prolific, amazing producer who's worked closely for years with bands like Earth, Sun, Kaodot, Avon Kang, Bill Frizzell, Chelsea Wolf, like really, really remarkable artists. He was on the show back in, I think, 2017, 2018. And it's, it was a good time to talk with Randall because in the last few months, in the last, I think, six months, he's actually opened up a studio in Brooklyn. The name of the studio is Circular Ruin. If you're familiar at all with Randall, with the work that he does, uh, with his own music, I think the studio is really like a good reflection of his his creativity. Lots of synths, uh, just like a really like vibed out room in which you can you know get some dark, subtle, and not so subtle sounds. All the music on today's show is from Randall's most recent record, which I actually played on, called Beloved. came out about a year and a half ago. And uh, it's a good talk. One thing you will notice with these, these podcasts that I'm doing right now is that the audio is going to be a little bit different week to week. Uh, and I've had to sort of navigate the best way to do it. You will notice on today's show that there's an echo on Randall's voice that's not on my voice. Uh, we were in different rooms. And you'll also hear, I, I think I got most of it out, but you will hear some, some kind of weird uh, feedback echo from my voice into Randall's mic. It, I, I did the best I could to get it all out, but you will hear it from time to time. Next week, Monday, May 4th. Guys, I don't want to sound like an asshole, but I have to for a second. Because uh, I know you got everyone's got good intentions. If you want your question to be answered on the show, you have to send them before we record. Now, again, I'm not trying to sound like an asshole, but we actually got some really good questions come in, uh, come in through the email after the conversation. So when I, when I go to social media and I say, this is it, last chance, uh, so-and-so and I are jumping on the mics in an hour or tomorrow, whatever it is, like, you got, you got to get them in before then. So I want to hear from you guys. I want you to send questions, but generally speaking, get them to me by Friday. I've been recording every one of these episodes on Saturday, so get them to me by Friday. Next week, Monday, May 4th, uh, it's going to be just me. It's my birthday, my 40th birthday. I didn't think I'd be spending it um, in quarantine, but I'll be answering questions. Me, solo on the mic, so send some good stuff. Uh, I look forward to hearing from you guys. That's it. This is me and Randall Dunn uh, from just this past Saturday.
think I'm ready. Going? Yeah, hold on. Let me let me let me figure this out because I wanted to look That's... at the questions. Yeah, I actually just got a, a one in the. Uh, someone sent one in just like a few minutes oh, ago. Oh, perfect. And then, um, and then I've got some other stuff to talk about. Dude, your studio looks good back there. Dude, it's killer. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I'm stoked. I'm gonna use it's this. $10,000 mic for your podcast. I'm going to use an SM57. <laughs> this is not mine. I wish it was. But what is that? 47. Ugh. And are you running it through like a tasty pre? Yeah, it's actually like really ridiculous. <laughs> Total recording engineer setup. So you're good. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I, honestly, dude. Best mic ever. Oh, yeah. They're totally, totally worthwhile. It's great. The Beta 57 to me is, I think, the mic I would, like, if I can only take one, I'd probably take that. Especially for clarinet. It's a good yeah. I don't ever use it to record a clarinet, but just in terms of versatility and, you know, SPL levels. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah. I feel that. So that studio back there, is that like the full, that's just that room, No, right? no. Yeah. I mean, I, there's there's the, yeah, it's a control room. Oh, probably. nice. Proper control room. Nice. Yeah. And what what's that board? It's an old Trident 65 from 77. Is that yours? Yeah. This whole place is mine. This is my studio. I, okay. Well, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about the studio. Um, okay. Um, so, wait. So, the studio, Circular Rune Studio. That's the new studio that you have. And, I, I mean, we've texted a little bit. You know, you I, I know that you built this room, but I'm still kind of... I, I I just remember when you first moved to New York, I asked you if you were going to build a studio, and you were like, absolutely not. I was wrong. I was deadly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if it wasn't for my work kind of changing a little bit, and then also kind of figuring out New York a little more, uh -huh. um, I probably wouldn't have. But now I sort of understand the need that was going to be filled by doing this and uh so far i haven't been wrong although the virus has made it uh more complicated um right it still has made this place like really worthwhile having and like um really great because a lot of people can work here that need a place to work right now to do remote stuff who normally mm -hmm. would either be on tour or doing whatever you know so that's helped a couple of people out and it's also um, been really good because I've been doing a lot more film stuff, which I can do remotely. And mm -hmm. um, this place is kind of set up for um, doing score work or score production work and then also just mixing and overdubbing records. Because mm -hmm. what I was finding was that there's so many great studios in town where you can track and you right. can mix. But... Um, I don't need a tracking room necessarily. I would much rather go and support those studios. Mm -hmm. And I would rather have a more flexible space that's cheaper for me on the back end of things to finish things. Yeah. I mean, I, I just like sort of looking back there and then I was looking at like uh, your different like synth. It seems like you've got a lot of keyboards and synths out there. Yeah, and it just seems like this room feels to me like a more natural extension of your own creative process. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And it's also like, you know, trying to have a bunch of stuff that wouldn't normally be found, you know, at every studio and like kind of setting it up for like 
that kind of thing. And instead of like spending tons of money on microphones where you would track drums and stuff like that, mm-hmm. we've spent it on instruments and, you know, like cool outboard gear. It's really Spartan and specific and mm-hmm. it's just working out great. It sounds killer in here. And yeah, well, it's, it's funny. Like I was talking to Urselli last week and it seems like really the only work that engineers can get right now, studio yeah. engineers, is mixing work pretty much yeah mixing or overdubbing or playing um playing a little bit on stuff for me because i'm lucky people ask me to do that sometimes and then Mm -hmm. for me i'm doing a lot of film producing like producing of scores right now and then also my own score stuff so it it yeah i can do all that alone here and it works out great and then ben greenberg's mixing his stuff here now too which is really great to have him doing stuff. So there's a cool variety of music going on here yeah. right now. And it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's kind of nice to have this as like a community right now. Cause uh, my other partner lives here as well. Um, Arjun Miranda, who's from black mountain. He plays in black mountain and also does um, a bunch of score work as well. And then Ulfra Hansen, who's a super incredible composer, instrument builder. Those are my other two partners in it. And then Ben, Ben is just doing his, um, his work here. So it's yeah, really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't wait till this fucking quarantine is over so I can come out. Come hang. Yeah, it's good. I mean, if that's ever a thing where people hang yeah. out in a small room for six hours at a time listening to loud mixes. I mean, I'll never take that for granted. That's for sure. At this point, right? I would love to have five people here just cranking something up. Yeah. <laughs> just like eating, eating sandwiches yeah. and like, yep. I mean, just I love mixing and I'm so thankful that people... When I reached out and, it, you know, at the very beginning of this, I thought, oh, wow, great time to start a studio. I'm going to die. And it actually ended up over the course of a week being the opposite. It was like, oh, my God, I'm so glad this is here because this there's a small community kind of attached to this now that that it's really going to work out good for through this. And, you know, we'll see it's on the other end, but um, I'm pretty hopeful. And it also like gives me a place to go and get out of my house and you know yeah still be isolated and and do work and same for the other people that work here and check in with people and you know not just sitting at home looking at twitter wanting to melt or something you know <laughs> yeah, yeah which is what i've been doing uh all right so i've got some questions here uh, okay. that i sourced from social media uh and I, I sent i sent you the questions um some of them kind of, you know, go over similar territory. Uh, I'll just start going through them, and then yeah, you, know, you just fire we'll, away on what, how you wanted me to answer them or what yeah. what's important yeah. about them, you know. And then you know, if we, if we want to like kind of take the long route on some of these and unpack some stuff, sure, uh, we will. Uh, so this first question is from Chad, and says, "Hi, Jeremiah and Randall. Thanks for your time taking the time to answer the questions." This is a good question. Uh, I am curious if and how travel has impacted your approach to music and sound. Mm. How do you internalize and then translate those experiences back into the recording studio? Thanks, and I hope that this makes some kind of sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I mean, travel in general just makes you more aware as a person or a human being. Uh I feel like if you travel, you really get a sense of like, alone like if you travel alone you really get a sense of like oh i really got to work on this (laughs) or this aspect of my life or this part of my personality like you can really 
feel it because there's nobody to blame it on. Like, oh, that guy was a jerk, so it made me a jerk. It's like, if you're a jerk, you're on your own. You're being the mm-hmm. jerk, you know? So I think for me, travel was where I really, like, was able to, to learn about myself and have confidence, learn how to have confidence. Plus, you get to interact with a lot of different cultures, which changes the way you think about music's role. And it also changes the way you hear relationships of pitch and rhythm. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a broader sense of um, how music is involved in everyday life, either religiously mm-hmm. or, you know, rock music or punk or whatever it is, you know, how that fits into people's lives. And also collaborating with people from other countries gives you this, like, real sense of... Um, openness that you have to have and a patience with language that you have to have Mm. that you know you have to remember that you're not getting maybe the full story if someone's talking to you about something you have to like be a bit more patient and understanding or try to learn their language and vice versa so there's a real real exchange with that and i think so much of the job that i do as a producer musician is about i mean all of us really is about translation that mm-hmm. that I think it just sharpens your scope. You know, the broader you are, the more more you can translate. And in the studio, when somebody's looking for a sound or a feeling, it's like it it kind of helps you being in all these different places or something. You can tap into these experiences in a way that maybe helps you get to the heart of the matter of what somebody's trying to do. Um, Yeah, I mean, just to sort of echo on that, I think, like, I remember the first time I traveled abroad, and frequently I was the only person who, in the room, who didn't speak the language. Right. And you begin to rely on other cues to sort of, you you begin to kind of, like, learn about people and and catch their rhythm, even though you have no idea what they're saying. Of course, yeah. And so I, I think if you're an engineer... Uh, and you're trying to, to access a sound that someone's maybe not able to articulate with words. Yeah. Uh, or if you're an instrumentalist, uh, you know, it's you kind of have to have a feel for for conversation that isn't always about words. Of course. Yeah, and I mean, so much of it, especially when you're producing, you know, I tend to be sort of hypervigilant about what's going on around me, the conversations about how someone feels about something or not, whether... I turn around and immediately address it. I'm definitely cataloging in my brain, like, well, maybe we need to look at that again. I feel that they're saying there. I'm listening. Sometimes people's breath when they're doing vocal takes, they're like, you know, or whatever. Like, you can pick up on those things. And I mean, a, a big part of that is also like emotional translation, or and it's things you learn, like from being around all kinds of different people doing all kinds of different yeah. music. And and but you know, I mean. Other than that, I mean, the obvious things are no culture really approaches music the same. Well, so, you've been to some pretty remote places. I mean, you've been to what? I've been Bali all over. And- yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been, yeah, I've been a lot of places. I've been really fortunate that when I was touring with Sun a lot, after every tour, I would kind of go somewhere and, and try to learn something, you know? The most time yeah. I probably spend and the most uh, collaborating I did is probably in Turkey. With Turkish, yeah. a lot of Turkish musicians, Erkin Korai, a bunch of different um, classical musicians, and I recorded Avon and Jessica, Avon Kang and Jessica Kenny there. 
and I've worked with a bunch of engineers there. So that, mm-hmm. that place is really kind of a second home as far as like um, where maybe I've done the most work out of the country, mm-hmm. other, other than like what, you know, Scandinavia or something. It's the sure. more. It's funny, Avon, you know, I'd actually like to talk for a little bit uh, about Avon Kang uh, and sure. your relationship to him and his music. Um, but right away, just when I when I close my eyes and I start imagining what the sound of his viola is yeah. or his violin, it just to me, it sounds ancient. It sounds like he's tapped into something that uh, is going back many, many years. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean... I've been fortunate enough to have known Avond since the 90s. So yeah. so much of his sound I, I watched either show up or I know sort of some of the sources of study that he's done or was fortunate enough over, God, 20 years to work with him in the studio and watch him develop certain things that he was doing. And also, I was learning them at the same time. It's like a language of how he works in the studio or, or different philosophies. Like, you know, I mean, you can't have a session with Dave and I always would like start to try to start it early because the first two hours are mostly talking about like what, you know what I mean? What trip he's on yeah. or like where he's coming from. And like, you know, it used to bother me. I remember when I was younger, it was like, man, we're really wasting time. Can't we just make music? And then I would be like, he was so efficient and so much better than everybody that you would still get more done in half a day than anyone in a day. So, so yeah, it didn't really matter. And then I started as I got older and, you know, our friendship got longer. It, I realized how, and especially nowadays when I look back, since we don't live in the same city anymore, uh, I really realized how valuable those conversations were to my literacy in music and composition and, the studio and what I'm trying to do with my own music and, mm-hmm. you know, even philosophically or spiritually, it's all such, he's been such an important role in my life as far as that stuff goes that, it, you know, I feel very well, I mean, So from the perspective of a producer, you know, you just said this thing about Avond where you had to figure out that his way of working, or at least at that time, yeah. was to sort of like slowly unpack these ideas and then just, you know, execute them. Uh, so yeah. you sort of have to arrive at a place where you accept that that's his way of working. Of course. Yeah. Of course. With, uh, with other artists that you've worked with, is that, you know, continually a challenge to sort of navigate people's work idiosyncrasies? Well, I think it used to be when I was younger, but, um, you know, as you get older, you get more confident. So you, you're, as a producer, you know, a lot of people think being a producer is about, um, that it's really about ideas, but it's not really about ideas. It's about ideas, but it's also about workflow management. Yeah. And part of workflow management is knowing what people are capable of doing, how they got to get there and, and the best way to sort of help them either stay engaged or, you know, be a part of their engagement. Cause some people move faster than you. And, you know, so you have to be aware of a lot of different working styles and stuff and, you know, I think there's so much emphasis on like the producer chooses the kick drum sound. It's like, that's not really, right. that's not really, in my opinion, producing. That's, that's something else, you know, it's related to the production as it's a whole, but the real big thing is dealing with people and that the time you're spending working on something is actually the thing that you're doing, not necessarily 
the record afterwards, you know? And the relational aspect of making that music is the art. The, mm-hmm. the, the square piece of plastic that comes out is just an echo of that. Yeah. You know? And uh, yeah. there's so much that happened in the making of a record that has nothing to do with what the audience gets out of it, you know? And um, so I try not to think about that side of it too much and really over the last years have put an emphasis on that my job is here and it'll reflect later, you know, it'll reflect later in the um, whole scheme of things without any problem if you're paying attention and are present when it's being made. Yeah. I've wondered about that, like how important it is for the listener or even if you're a composer for the instrumentalists that are interpreting the music, how important, if at all, is for them to have an understanding of what uh, th- what that process was, of, of what was yeah. going on, what your troubles were, what your inspirations were. It's interesting because I could mention records that I know people have this strong connection to where I know that the people who made it um, or some of the players on it had no idea what was happening. They yeah. just played a part. I mean, I always think of right. Trey in that sense. Trace Bruins. Yeah, like he has this huge vision of these incredibly complex things, and he might record a flute part that's just like four seconds long, and then he's going to move it in there later. And the, so the person who played it has no relationship to the composition necessarily, yeah. other than they played that, that microcosm for a second. You know, I mean, he obviously does pieces that are not that, and and does, and I'm really happy that he's doing more. Um, he's doing more ensemble live, like live ensemble music, which is what I always wanted him to do. I think his studio creations are so creative that I'm I'm really looking forward to how many ever more years of like ensemble classical music that he he'll do. I hope, and. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and he's like yeah. he's truly a sound alchemist. Like if he, I can only imagine the hard drives that he is laying around. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so there's very little a person like I can bring to that, you know, other than recording something well or occasionally just trying to get him to finish something, you know. <laughs> and like so, there's not really anything to. I mean, he's a, he's brilliant, you know, and his his knowledge yeah. of what he's doing is it exceeds what I'm available to him for and so you know there's another thing is like even as the producer engineer you're a bit on the outside of that like normally I would be very involved in the construction of something whereas with him I'm just like it's just purely bureaucratic and he has a whole like Kafka book of things he's going to do to it you know (laughs) and I'm just one cog in the whole machinery of it you know so. All right, so that that leads to well, two different questions. Um, and I know there are tons of material you recorded with Avon Kang and Trace Bruins back in 2004. Uh, the date may be wrong, but both Trey and Avon told me that you have plenty of music by them. Any updates or ideas uh, of what's going on with those sessions? Uh, no, that's a question for Trey. That's like, yeah, there's no, <laughs> speaking of hard drives and hard drives, some of that stuff, you know, it was such a early iteration of Pro Tools that I think some of it got exported in a way that was incorrect or right. stored incorrectly or, um, or just lost. I, who knows, you know? So yeah. I know that it seems to kind of keep trickling out. Like every year I notice there's a Secret Chiefs 
record that's in my discography automatically. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> I have no idea. So I imagine for the next 20 years, that'll probably be the case, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh yeah. Like I, sometimes people, you know, it's been years since I worked on something and they're like, oh man, that thing you just did with Trey. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? I, like, haven't, seen <laughs> I haven't seen this, you know? So then yeah. I have to like, go look for it, you know? Cause nobody sends me anything. So, you know. Right, right. <laughs> I'm uh, more so interested, to be quite honest, on what Trey's going to do in the future. Because, yeah, yeah. Because I feel like there are hard drives and hard drives and hard drives full of things. But I feel like the ensemble music that Trey could write with the wisdom that he has now would be incredible. Like, really beautiful. And I hope that there's people who give him the opportunity to do something with people in a room and that also the virus lets this happen in a way that doesn't rely on um, a lot of studio lifting and he can really do something visually uh, like vision wise that incorporates humans doing something all together and and it gets deep like that you know yeah i mean i heard the thing he did for um for chronos quartet oh yeah that was gorgeous that was beautiful yeah, and it was just also like you could absolutely hear that that that's him, uh, but it also just had this sort of like breath to it that that happens when you have four acoustic musicians. Yeah, I mean, I I think if unleashed onto that sort of situation or given those resources, that Trey's like a Pandarecki or something like he could do music of that caliber. Is yeah. doing music of that caliber that doesn't necessarily have to, you know, keep this machine, this rock machine going that that he you know some musicians have to do in order to to make adventurous music they have to kind of work within a rock semi-rock capacity you know so yeah so then there's another question here from richard uh it's a three-part question but it also kind of relates to what we were talking about a second ago um first part of his question is in situations where the line between recording engineer and producer isn't exactly clear how do you how do you judge how much control over the session that you should introduce if you're just being paid to engineer, do you feel it's right to make suggestions, even objective ones, about like matters of intonation or performance, mm. or is it better just to hit record? Um, that's complicated. Uh, well, I I very rarely am just an engineer anymore, and it's yeah. been that way for several years. So I'm really lucky in that sense that people trust what I am saying and going into something. There's a lot of conversation now about what. Um, about what we're going to be doing together and how the collaboration will work and what the credits are. Like, I, I just clear it all up at the beginning. And then we don't have to have that conversation anymore. And it's very clear what we're doing. And, you mean like, a discussion about the boundaries? Yeah, just like, look, this is how I see myself fitting into this record. Because every record's different and every artist is yeah. different. And So I, I tend to have that conversation really early, early on. Like, well, here's some ideas I have. And then that way you're not doing it. You're not having that experience in the studio where you say something and someone's like, whoa, man, like no, no reverb or whatever. You know what I mean? Like you have to do a lot of legwork to get on the same page before you start. Yeah. And then I find that that really, you know, most of the time will quell any boundaries or any thoughts that are happening in the studio. It's a big belief of mine that the most important thing you can do when you start to work with someone is eliminate doubt. Like doubt in them, them having doubt in you getting good sounds or what you're doing or that you're on the same page or that you're there to not there or there to support them. Like they, they have to know that that's what is transpiring and that it's not, you know, I think when you're younger, you want to like 
show what you know. Like, let me just like start doing all this stuff. And then you lose the person. And, um, I was talking about this earlier. It's like, there's such an emphasis now on being fast as being a, like a, a bonus of something, you know, like, Oh, that person's really fast. I don't mm-hmm. care if someone's fast. I care if they're accurate. And if everyone in the room was on the same page the whole time, like, mm-hmm. I mean, fast is cool. I understand it's related to economy, but to be honest, the, the best producer keeps people with them and stays with the people that they're working with. And, and everyone's on the same step the whole time, you know, keeping things very present and aware. And that way you're not just like throwing a bunch of stuff on something. And then somebody's like, Whoa, I don't feel like this is in my hands anymore. You know? Right. So, you know, there's a fine line of like how you get to those spots and how you lead people to spots, how they lead you to spots. And, and I think, um, you know, if you're an engineer and you're being hired to engineer it, that's your job. You're just getting sounds representing what's there. It's like a documentary filmmaker, you Uh know, Steve Albini is a great example of this always. And that's what you do, you know? And if you're involved in the collaborative process of how the record sounds, that's very different job than that in a very different yeah. role yeah uh so he's got i mean we can keep going he's, he's got two more questions sure. uh sonically speaking what are some of your favorite albums of all time hmm. and then the next question was who are some artists that you haven't worked with but would like to hmm. okay uh sonic records of all time that's a good one um hmm. well there's like all the eno stuff Especially the early rock stuff, like Here Come the Ward Majettes. I, uh-huh. th- I think that stuff's incredible. It's really beautiful music. Um, I really, when I was younger, I was really into a lot of the early Bill Laswell stuff. Um, I think those records sound really interesting. You mean like Material or Massacre? Or yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, all that stuff, or even Praxis, even that stuff. Right. I thought that stuff sounded really... It sounds dated now, but it sound, it's still sure. really cool. Um, I really like uh, a lot of the sound of Alan Lomax recordings um, mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. Um, the field recordings of... Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Field recordings are beautiful, I think. And um, classic ones like, you know, um, Pink Floyd, Amagama, Dark Side of the Moon is a beautiful record. Mm-hmm. Um early uh alan parsons project like uh, pyramids that record Mm -hmm. incredible i really like a lot of those late 70s records and um craftwork records i think sound incredible yeah Uh, i think they're beautiful i got really into zz tops catalog recently which those records sound incredible they're amazing i even like up to eliminator which i think is like eliminator's great an incredible record and afterburner um there's a lot of like obscure synth records that I think are beautiful. Um, Elaine Radig's music on recording yeah. is gorgeous. And um, there's a Darius Mion, uh, uh Woodwind Quintet record that I think is beautiful. I can't remember the name of it. Who, right who's now. the composer? Darius Mion. Okay, I don't, I don't know them. Um, there's, yeah, those Dumitrescu records sound incredible. I mean, there's yeah. so many. I could go on and on and on and on. Yeah, 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 yeah you know. Yeah. So, but that's All the right. stuff that I, inspires me, either compositionally or musically or sonically. You know, Eno is a real touchstone for me. Daniel Lenoir's music and production, yeah. 
he's like a uh, maybe the person I relate with. If you could like throw someone in between Trent Reznor and Daniel Lanois, I feel like that. Yeah, I feel like I identify the most with whoever that person is. You know? Sure, maybe so. too. <laughs> uh, and then he asks, uh, "Who are some artists that you haven't worked with that you'd like to?" Um. Hmm. I there's a couple that I've just wanted to do because I love them since I was young. Soren's one. Yeah. Um, but there's one of my other great colleagues has a monopoly on that, which is great. <laughs> he does great work. Um, then uh, Eno would be definitely one. Yeah. I would love before they're too old to do a U2 record. Really? Yeah. I would totally do it. What, what about U2? Uh, I loved them when I was younger, and I really loved the work Lanwan Eno did with them. Right. And I think they're really open-minded and, and interesting characters like maybe it's because i'm irish like there's something something there for me but I, yeah. I i think that like in a rick rubin sense like right now they could make a record that would be like whoa you know right that it could be really interesting actually if they got pushed again like that so i feel like they've just kind of been like cold playing it up here for a couple of years you know and i actually yeah. think joshua tree is a really incredible album like on the level of like Dark Side of the Moon or something, I think sure. what's going on inside that record is really incredible that Lanois did musically. Um, there's a lot of directors I would love to work with that, like score wise. That's a whole nother conversation. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, we'll we'll we'll, yeah. we'll wrap it around to that because I do want to ask you some questions about scoring. Uh, sure, sure. So here I've got two questions that are both kind of uh, lengthy. Maybe I'll break them up uh, with a shorter one, but. This came in today from a, a person named Ask, and these a couple questions. The first is, uh, are there certain things you consciously do in terms of sound when you're producing or mixing a record that you would say is your trademark uh, or your sound? A sound that is no matter who you're producing or mixing for. If so, what is that sound in your opinion, and what do you do to achieve it? Uh I've been trying to figure that out for a while because <laughs> yeah. people say that there's a sound, but I can never figure it out. I just listen to stuff and I'm like, I don't know. It sounds normal mm -hmm. to me, you know? So I think there's a lot of stuff I do unconsciously mm -hmm. and maybe I've boiled it down to a few things. I think, I think I have a mid range quality, like low mids and lows that are very different sounding than a lot of engineers that I know. It's, they're just very different the way that the octaves are voiced. Um, I tend to have a lot more and allow a lot more in that register. Whereas I think a lot of people are looking for clarity. I'm looking for mystery. And um, I think that's one thing maybe. And then the other thing is I think spatially um, I can be a bit more radical or aggressive than a lot of music these days. Like I like to make things very wide and very deep and, you know, there's great examples of people that do that but i think a lot of stuff these days that it's done in the box it doesn't really have a true horizon feeling to me mm -hmm. it feels a bit flat mm -hmm. so maybe those things i would hope too that people hear like even if it's electronic music like there's humanity in it or like they hear the personality of the artist or whatever the intent is like that's something i hope is a big big 
big part of my recordings. Well, I mean, something I, I hear in a lot of your productions, and I think like uh, the best example that I can think of would be that Sun record, Monolith and the Dimensions. Um, sure. The first track, the way the viol- Avon's violas are mixed, yeah. uh, is completely disconnected from reality in that... Sun is playing this incredibly loud, uh, overpowering music, and if that was in a room, you wouldn't even hear it. You wouldn't hear any of that sound. Stuff. And yeah. the way that it's recorded and mixed, it yeah. sounds like the microphone is inside the. Inst- you can hear every yeah. creaky piece of wood, every hair on the bow, and so it's like it's not reality. No, but it's no, actually yeah. representing something in a really imaginative and unusual way. Yeah, I mean, I think of a lot of sound as metaphysical, so it's yeah, I don't get too hung up on reality sometimes unless that's the intent like unless that's like what what we're trying to do quartet or something yeah but i I like microscopic sounds over giant sounds you know because it it unifies them in a world you know like insects to sun like sunlight those two things are totally different you know so so yeah i don't think of of um having things necessarily to have to be um sonically representative of um what's actually happening you know that's important i mean that's there's such great engineers that do that but i'm trying to to hopefully with the artists i'm working with to trying to create something that is like um suspended belief or more like a painting or poetry or something you know so yeah uh the second part of asks question and i don't know how much you want to go down this because it kind of seems like it's a question about how Sun works. Uh, it says, how do Sun go about improvising on their records and live? How do they avoid everything clashing in a s- sub-bass traffic accident, but actually create beautiful music? Uh, for instance, when they play live, it seems like they're all, they all agree on hitting the same chord during an improvised section. Hmm. Um, so, Strangely, um, they, the improvising is more time-based than it is musically-based. Um, they do have long sections of improvising, but, but, um, the compositions are not as, uh, uh, atonal, nor are they as undeliberate as I think people think. I think, I think that they're, they're super deliberate and it's gotten progressively more so over the years, like post monoliths, I think in general. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're also very good at already working away from each other or complementary of each other. And, um, so I think, you know, in the studio it's, it's challenging because, um, there are a lot of shared frequencies in the sounds and you have to find them. And, and, uh, especially if you're doing something like monoliths or there's a vocalist involved, you have to craft things in a way that makes sense for, um, for that to happen, you know? And, uh, I think Albini did a really beautiful job at capturing, what they sound like on their own, just without anyone doing anything. I think that's the coolest representation of that aspect of Sun that I've heard on the last mm-hmm. the last records. And also the clearest I've heard the playing. Like, you know, as far as the way that Steve and uh, Greg interact on, yeah. on that record. It's very clear as to whose role is what and how it's come together. It's really interesting to hear, actually. I like that when that happens. When I work with somebody a lot and then they end up working with someone else that I really respect, it's always like Christmas, you know? 
It's like, whoa, yeah. that, that's how that person hears it? That's awesome, you know? Right, right, it's right, like, right. It's rewarding. Yeah, and you also hear the things that, like, it makes you think about the recordings you did with them differently, too. You're like, wow, yeah, I didn't really bump that part of it. I was going for something. Like, you hear kind of what you were interested in bringing forth in the mix or something, you know? And I think yeah. that, that that represents what's really beautiful about that is you hear... I mean, we have great examples of that, like, you know, David Bowie and Tony Visconti's relationship. Like, you get to hear that, and then when David Bowie would work with someone else, like Eno, you could really hear what that person's take was on their music. I like these eras, um, and I find since peop- are, so many people are making music alone in their bedrooms, through, we're getting less and less of this. But yeah. we're, it, I really love when you can hear the collaboration of of a band and a producer. I think it's really valuable and really positive and keeps the artist moving forward and keeps the, the producer moving forward. And there's an ecosystem there that I think is really beneficial. Yeah. This actually, so the last part of Ask's question is what is the most artistically rewarding album you've ever worked on and why? Whoa. That's difficult. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would probably say um, Live Low to the Earth in the Iron Age is maybe one of them. It's an Avon Kang record from yeah. years ago or something. Yeah, and it has very little to do with the music, actually. It's just, uh, I think about my development at that time as a human being and also yeah. my friendship with Avon and just where the times were at. And I, maybe I'm just thinking about something I'm looking fondly at, not necessarily rewarding. And then um, doing my own record this last year was like maybe something I should have done a long time ago, but probably couldn't have done what I did. And that felt really good to do and, and get out of my system, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Which you're on. So. Yes, I am. <laughs> All right. So then th- this actually blends well into this next question. This is by uh, Matthew. Uh, let's see. He says wolves. Okay, he's just got a couple compliments up front uh, about some records that you're on. But then his question is, or that you produce rather, um, how do you approach engineering guitars for these bands like uh, Wolves in the Throne Room, Earth, Sun? How do you go? Uh, how do you approach engineering guitars for these bands live and in the studio? Specifically, what amps, mic, pre's, compressors, speaker room, etc. Oh, like gear, gear stuff. Well, I think he's asking about gear, but yeah. I think he's also asking just like, how do you, what, how would you most sure. clearly define the two different approaches between front of house sound for a band like Sun, which I can imagine is very challenging. Yeah. I mean, you know, live and studio is so different. It's like really, really different. And, um, the way that I worked with Sun is like a language that we developed, um, you know, and that's so room dependent. Um, but most of the time I use just 57s all the way across the stage. Are you kidding me? No. Oh, for live. live yeah, live, live, right, live, right, live right. yeah. Yeah. In the studio, I got more fond of um, ribbon mics like Royer 121s and uh, using a lot of solid state mic pre's like APIs and uh, Neves 1272s. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of ribbon mics, Coles, Royer 121s. Um, maybe U87s in the studio for the room on Omni. Because mm-hmm. you have to get a room thing with them. It can't just be close mics. It sounds like a mosquito if you get too close, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, yeah, I mean, the live thing like, is a totally different conversation than the studio, but, you know, the way I approach record, record guitars is the way I approach anything. It's like I have my favorite mics and stuff, but I really am trying to get down to the microscopic. I try to make tones feel confrontational and large and immersive and and um whether that's through layering or just one incredible sound i i try to find the the best thing and use the whatever chi that that thing has in the whole mix and make it work you know sometimes it can be very minimal sometimes it can be like 20 layers you know but there's a lot of spatialization concepts that are involved in the layering and especially with wolves in the throne room um, we would sometimes make distortions in four or five layers that took up a totally different frequency range and spatial range. So, um, so that was super fun. It's funny. I, Wolves in the Throne Room, absolutely. Sun, absolutely. To capture that music on recording and really finding the clarity in in sound that that is over that overwhelming. Yeah, seems really challenging. Yeah, and it's also like when you see a band, those are two good examples. When you see those bands live, they're really loud. There's a lot of like phenomenon happening in the room that is a big part of why you feel certain ways when you hear it, that you kind of have to find a way to fake on a recording, or you have to be impressionistic with making it seem like that's there. And uh, I think that's a really important thing that I brought to both those recordings of those bands was like talking to them and figuring out a way or trying to talk about that, that phenomenon um, that's happening naturally or in a room that to make people feel like that's still there on a record. Cause you, that's where I think a lot of metal and a lot of stuff fails is, you know, like whatever, a lot of like metal core and stuff these days, it sounds so contained and specific and clear that it has no, I don't find it to have a there's, core of any kind. I find it to there's sound no danger. There's no menace. To no, it. I think it just sounds anemic and and like really macho, like a like a freshly washed Ford truck or something, you know. Whereas right. like I I tend to gravitate more towards bands with mystery, like Wolves in the Throne Room, or you know, getting involved in that whole early Southern Lord scene. Um, there's always like a. Uh, another layer of the aggression or non-aggression or spectral aspect of the, the music that has to be yeah. there for me with metal and otherwise I get very disinterested in it. Well, I mean, prior to your involvement with that specific scene around Southern Lord, was metal and dark aggressive music a big part of your life? Uh, I mean, I'm a goth kid, so, you know, I, I grew up yeah. listening to Nine Inch Nails, weird music, and yeah, it's always been there, but I was not per se a metal youth but i was really aware of it and um you know i came to it more from an experimental angle for sure and yeah. i think that's what o'malley and i especially in the sun kind of found each other right off the bat you know working on burning witch stuff or whatever like uh, we could relate with sound in the way that we talk about it very uh -huh. deeply and it it's created a really long collaborative life that I've had with that guy that I really appreciate, you know. It's funny that the spectral aspect that you mentioned uh, a second ago is interesting because a lot of that music uh whether it's you know Dumitrescu or Radulescu or 
and for me to a lesser extent like Griset. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It has that sense of menace, that sense of uneasiness deeply. Yeah, to deeply. It. Yeah. That like I've uh, that I've every every time I'm always like this is like way more metal than most metal. Like, yeah. why can't we just take some of this and put it over there? Yeah, well like to me metal is elemental, you know. Yeah. And for me a lot of what happened like post hardcore or hardcore is it became about like masculine like anger <laughs> like corporeal yeah. masculine anger you know like yeah. like material anger and that's cool it's related to punk in a lot of ways you know but i i you know when i listen to wolves or something and maybe this is just because the talks we have about concept or even like the lyrics or sound that attila does is it all it's much more impressionistic and metaphysical dread mm -hmm. and i find that more interesting especially these days to to um sort of like white masculine anger mm -hmm. <laughs> find it much more <laughs> you know like I, I don't i mean i grew up with a big white guy shouting at me so i don't need more of that <laughs> in my life you know so that's a good call uh, i've got a, a a tasty a spicy question here from derek uh, I'd, I'd be curious to, to hear what you have to say, and I've got some thoughts of my own on this. Uh, hi, Jeremiah and Randall. I have heard both of you speak of your relationship to Buddhism and Buddhist practice, specifically the influence of the teachings of Chogyam Trungpa. In light of the Me Too and Time's Up movements, have your feelings on Trungpa changed? Or is it a matter of separating, quote-unquote, the art from the artist? Do you think that people in positions of power have a greater responsibility to conduct themselves with higher virtue? Thanks in advance. Sorry if this isn't about music. Wow. Yeah, that's a multi-layered question right there. <laughs> that's a good one. Well, okay. So first I would just preface everything by saying um, that I have never been in a relationship with what the East would call a guru, like a guru relationship. Culturally, that relationship is different than the confines of, say, modern sociopolitics. Um, and I have no comment on what that is. I couldn't tell you. You would have to ask somebody that religiously chooses to experience something like that and what that means to them. And I think it's going to be different for everybody. Um, so I, I don't know that type of lineage i haven't been involved in that sort of lineage of learning ever and that's the real deep deep stuff that happens in especially in tibetan buddhism is if you're you're really taking refuge and going down that path that's a part of it, it i'm not saying the abuse and stuff i'm saying uh, just, the just relationship a second. taking really. refuge is an actual formal thing that you do to totally formal yeah, yeah. yeah that's what it's I'm really yeah, yeah. it's a it's an intent to be religious and study with a guru and, yep. right. and Sorry, to right. enter into that lineage. And uh, I've flirted with that a lot and um, been a part of different sanghas and different temples and studied different um, approaches to Buddhism, you know, just because of intellectual curiosity. But I've never been engaged in that type of relationship with somebody like Trungpa Rinpoche was doing with his students up, was that upstate, I think? Uh, well, in uh, Boulder, or outside of Boulder. Outside Colorado. of Boulder, yeah. yeah. And then 
I, I know that some stuff has come to light. I actually don't know the full specifics of what... I know there was that documentary where um, it was talked about, but I actually didn't go too far in it. But, but I, I understand the question. And for me, first and foremost, the teachings of Trungpa Rinpoche aren't necessarily his. And I also don't think that he would own them. He would say that he owned them. And uh, I find them just to be iterations of a lineage of, of Buddhist teachings. Absolutely. And so that part of it you can engage with through multiple teachers. And his is just one perspective from his way of doing things and how he, you know, his real mission in life, what he was talking about was to try to make Westerners be able to understand those teachings clearly and to have an in because it it really is uh, dangerous when you go into that if you're not prepared for the cultural difference and your gaze is from where you're coming from you, you're going to miss something or you're not going to understand something and uh so you know so Yes, those are his teachings. Yes, those are his books. But in the end, they're fundamentals of Buddhism. And he's a very clear teacher of that. Yeah. And I don't necessarily have to make a decision on whether he's a bad person or not. It's not really my judgment because I didn't have any direct interaction with him. But I do know that through his expression of fundamentalist or a fundamental, not fundamentalist uh, <laughs> teachings, of, maybe he was... Uh, through his expression of those things on written book, they're they're really worthwhile, and they've been really helpful to me, and also really beneficial to um, uh, understanding the interdependence of everything around me, and and you know how to have a life. In particular, his book uh, called Dharma Art changed the way I thought about making records. Uh, and I mentioned this earlier, is that the making of the thing is more important than the thing. Yeah, like the path is the goal. Yeah, yeah. Your, your life yeah. is more important than the end of it, the pile that you have. You know, mm -hmm. so being present and walking with that, you know, is is um, important. And and the, the, the real work, you know. And, um, yeah, I, I, I am incredibly sympathetic to... The crappy things that he did and also his kind of dismissal of it, which was, I think, um, don't do as the master does. Like someone asked him about drinking and he was like, don't do as the master does unless you have the mind of the master, you know, right. which is interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, every human being is flawed. And I think he had drinking problems, substance problems. He also it's really easily to anachronistically judge um, anything that happened in the 70s and 60s with today's, you know, mentality, I think. Yeah, I mean, and the goalpost is constantly moving, so constantly to judge moving. someone who died 35 years ago yeah. by contemporary standards, which I would say, I mean, you know, I, I don't know how, how uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a little suspicious of the metric of using Me Too and Time's Up as... 
I mean, if you if you look at this woman, Tara Reid, that's accusing Joe Biden like of rape, and it's like p- the people who have been prominent in that movement are just like, nah, we don't, we didn't mean it for you. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, exactly. I, I think I, that is to say, I think someone today, if Trump was still alive, I actually think he'd be uncancelable uh, because he never really hid this behavior. He never he never uh, celebrated it necessarily. He didn't, but he was never he was very clear about who he was. And that's, yeah, I think he was too. Yeah, I, yeah, that's from what I see. And and you know, I I don't know the details obviously, and I, I don't know the person or anybody that's accused him. I haven't read anything specific. I know a little bit from that documentary, but but um, I don't think it's any mystery that he was a drunk. No. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know, not at all. But uh, you mean, know, in the same actually, way that largely, Alan Watts, largely and, the appeal for a lot of people. Yeah, and like I think in the same way that Alan Watts or Leonard Cohen or like a lot of these people, um, you know, uh, a lot of these flawed people of any gender um, have really brilliant, beautiful, wonderful things to say, but they also might have beat their husband or may have drank too much or done heroin or, you know, like. Mm-hmm. It, it's a constant understanding of people that we have to have that's like, look, people are flawed. It, you know, if people are pretending that they don't have flaws, it's really traumatic to the world. Well, it's also, I mean, it's part, of, it's part of what's baked into what it is that you are enjoying and participating with. Yeah. I, I think about it like a frequency range. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah, me, so I've got one more question. <laughs> From uh, from a listener, uh, sure. and then I got some stuff I want to ask. Uh, so this is from Tom. He says, "Hey guys, uh, I'm part of a Seattle-based improvised music quartet. We just mixed and mastered an improv record, and we're interested in getting it released on a label. What advice would you uh, give to someone new to the process of contacting labels and getting music, particularly improvised music, released in the modern day?" What's this person's name? Do I know them? Uh, you might, Tom Scully. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know his name. Yeah. Um, that's a good question, isn't it? Well, pre-virus, I would have a totally different answer than I would have now, which is, I think given where things are at, it's going to be really important coming out of it that people understand that they have to create their own ecosystems and they have to help each other. And they have to be prepared to release their art on their own. And also that means investing in your art on your own and finding ways to do that, whether it's through patronage or Patreon or Kickstarter or whatever you got to do or mom or, you know, whatever. Um, Or if you're lucky enough to find a label, the investment that it will take after this is going to be different. And we have an opportunity to create a different type of ecosystem, I think, of interdependence and smaller scenes again um, that I'm really looking forward to, actually. And, you know, I think that's the positive out of all this that's going to happen is that, you know, um, things will become less branding and monolithic Instagram personalities and more more specific about making things and why and supporting each other and uplifting collaborators and making sure people get paid correctly. And, you know, uh, hopefully that lesson is coming out of this as like, Oh, I guess if we're all in it for the short term, this whole thing's going to collapse, you know, and being in it for the short term means 
allowing Spotify to continue to screw everybody or whatever it is. Like, I think musicians hopefully understand that in smaller communities and helping each other, there's something much stronger than just trying to claw your way to the top label or what you're trying to put out, you know? I mean, that yeah. that's like a broad answer to a really specific question. I mean... I mean, I would say, you know, you know uh, as someone who's released, you know, I've done like eight or nine records on sure. I, that I've released myself. And I would say, what is it that you like? Look at the labels that you like. Look at the labels that you would want to be on and you would feel honored to be on. And then just like seriously, like pen and paper, figure out what it is that you like about those. Uh, yeah. Is, yeah. There, is there a physical aesthetic and a design aesthetic? Well, then figure out a way to do that. If, is it the sound of the records? Okay, well, what is it about the sound? And then chase that. Is yeah. it that these records tend to end up on top 10 lists? Then maybe you need to focus on the PR aspect. Like, I, I just look at how you can really own every aspect of of the production and then kind of set yourself aesthetic goals to hit yeah that's the most important thing yeah i mean it, it's tough going to be tough right now to find any label to respond positively to putting something out i mean it's been tough for 15 years yeah yeah but i think it's going to be more tough i think yeah. you know obviously like one thing is just looking on a really small level right now manufacturers are not working so there's no product that can be made right now. So when this all starts up again, everyone's releases from the last three months are going to have to get made before the next round of things. So everyone's getting pushed off the, the normal deadlines and everything. On top of that, most of the bands that are happening right now or people playing their touring might get displaced until February, January, who knows? So most people are not going to want their records to come out unless they're about to tour. So we're displacing a whole industry by a year, you know? And that's like a real reality of where we're at with stuff. And uh, An industry that was already kind of, kind of already not quite help. on life support, but definitely yeah. having problems. Yeah. So, you know, that just tells me that we have to like... We have to. There's a guy named uh, Matt Dryhurst, um, who's uh, Holly Herndon's partner. Um, okay. I mean, obviously, he's much more than that. But he's. Uh, I follow him on Twitter and a couple things, and and have spoke to him just briefly online, like or uh, just sending him a message, you know. But I find his work and study that he's been doing about interdependent music, like this concept of interdependent music rather than independent music is really awesome and he's got a very good sense of very dry and good sense of humor about it um i posted something the other day that was like his pros and cons of interdependent versus independent music you know mm-hmm. and like I, I just find him really interesting he he made an interesting meme that was like um uh you you thought independent what meant something else but it was actually isolation you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it talks about this kind of 2000s mentality of like, oh, I can just make things alone in my bedroom and I don't need anybody. And I don't, you know, like the rugged individual of the early 2000s and mid 2000s um, as being something that needs to get corrected and looked at again, because yeah. it's, it's not viable. Just all these rugged, lone individuals don't it's it's not true. 
No one creates anything by themselves. No one. I mean, rugged individual is a goddamn capitalist lie that, and it's a carrot that in this country we've been chasing. Yeah, but I think through branding, a lot of people, younger people, bought into that as a part of the process. Like, I'm already a fully formed individual. I'm right. going to start releasing things. It's like it's a journey, you know. And yeah, and um, I think it's like got to get revised. This whole thing of like the one person on the pedestal with the Instagram account with like half of half of the followers being robots and like, and then a bunch of people looking at that going like, I need to do that. I need to be successful or, and I'm talking about every genre of music. This isn't exclusive. This is happening pervasively in electronic and experimental music or just as much as it is in pop music now. And it never used to be that way. That's something that changed in the two thousands. And, um, I think that just needs to get reviewed and mm-hmm. thought about it. And, and I think people need to work outside of just themselves now and work with collaborators and people that make them better and sound better and things that, you know, work with musicians again. Like one thing that's a good takeaway from this whole thing is hire musicians, you know, and pay them well and pay your collaborators if you can. And it comes back, you know, just doing something like a harvester very quickly, you know, and then not paying or giving credit because you want to be seen as the rugged individual. It's like, that's a non-sustainable way of doing things, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So the other Um, way might be more expensive, but it's also every time you put invest in somebody, at least in my opinion, that I've invested in someone helping them do something like a record or something, it's always come back to me. And I think people need to, to think that way again. I think that's what will be beneficial. I don't know if that answers his question, but yeah. yeah. Uh, how do you, yeah. Um, I, I, I think, I don't know if it answers my question. <laughs> I, I, th- I, I personally, Tom think you might be better off just doing it yourself. Uh, because resources are very thin right now. And, um, you know, I think if you do it yourself, you actually genuinely have the opportunity for it to come out exactly as you want. Uh, so, that would be my suggestion. Yeah. Um, Always be prepared to do that. Yeah. yeah. And also, but just like... Because also... It's, ex- the, the, I mean, it's fucking exciting to, to expand your skill set. Of course. Whether using pho- of course it Photoshop is. or yeah. a new piece of gear. Yeah. The other thing, too, is that I think a lot of people think very short. Like, oh, if I put it out myself... What, you know, sometimes in 10 years, a record you put out yourself becomes like, whoa, I'm so glad I have this this record from Tom Scully. It's gonna, let's reissue it, you know? Yeah. And because your, your work as you go on and you learn and you get better, recontextualizes your early work. How many yep. of us are buying reissues of earlier artists like work that probably when they made it, everybody was like, this is terrible. Like, <laughs> like Peter Brotzman Machine Gun, people were probably like, geez, oh man, like, yeah. I don't need that, you know? But now it's right. like, man, that thing sounds like war. Like we need yeah. to hear it, you know. Yeah, so you, yeah. you know, part of growing as an artist is also recontextualizing your early work. And if you're releasing it yourself and you're building this catalog and you're building like your own releases, if if you really believe in what you're doing and it's growing, then ten years from now, something that seems like a bad idea of releasing it yourself could maybe be the smartest thing you've ever done. You don't know. You just don't know. You know. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a lot of records that I thought 
no one would really care about. They were just exciting to do at the time become these records that now I have to talk about on a podcast like all day, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so you never know how your work gets like, you know, recontextualized. So. Yeah. Um, so that's it for the questions that we got. I want to kind of conclude asking uh, a little bit about soundtrack stuff. Sure. Because I, I came to you like a year or two ago, and I was like, hey, give me like the nuts and bolts of what I need to know if I get hired for this soundtrack gig. And like yeah. what you're... So I kind of want to like revisit that a little bit. But also, I just I noticed this thing the other day. Um, I watched both movie I can't think of the filmmaker's name unfortunately and I feel like an ass right now but I watched Hereditary and Midsummer. Oh Ari, yeah yeah. Yeah. Uh and to me both of those films seemed like extended music videos. Like, sure. I, I thought that Colin's music in Hereditary and Bobby's music in Midsummer were up front in a way that you don't commonly see yeah. um, soundtracks now. You know, maybe 60 years ago, yeah. you, the music was more present, but it also seemed like they're using the music as sound design. So it's not just exactly. themes, yeah. but the, the, the sub bass and like, I, I just, I'm going to open that up and then kind of toss that over to you. Um, I'm going to start by mentioning somebody from New York named Roz, Mess and I who you know, yeah, who came up with a term that I really wish would stick. Uh, It's called score design. And I think a lot of what's happening right now is score design. Yeah. And it's what I get asked to do a lot of, and I think a lot of people do. And it's basically helping composers who are already like super gifted at sound sculpture and stuff see the whole idea kind of through, you know? And um, I think it's also the merging of uh, sound design and the score. Um, And I think a lot of what happened over the last 10 years or so is that sound design became really creative. And a lot of musicians um, were creating fairly abstract music that was more like sound design Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still music, but it's sound design um, as a part of the music um, more than ever. And, you know, I, I Tim Hecker's somebody I, I see in that camp. Johan Johansson was definitely in that camp. Ben Frost is in that camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, One of the Tricks is in that camp. Like, really great musicians, but also, like, really adept at working with sound in a very creative way. And I think part of that, too, is that tools and stuff happened kind of at once, you know. I mean, there was a similar moment to this, like maybe when Wendy Carlos and everybody was doing synth music for film, Tangerine Dream. That was also a moment where technology sort of showed up and sound design became a little more important in these scores. And I think we kind of hit that with computers and processing and Max MSP and all these things too um, now. So you see a lot of people that are like really good at that stuff and... I'm lucky enough to be a part of doing some of that myself with some of those people. Um, That makes it really beneficial to a film because the score and the sound design can become one character, one interweaved character. Um, In the sense of Colin's music for Hereditary, it's super poetic and the spatialness of it is really, uh, it's um, married to the composition. 
and you can't pull the things apart. You know what I mean? And right. uh, so I think that more and more people want that feeling because it's it's alien or it's mysterious. The sounds that are made, you know, for these scores. Johan was really, in particular, with Arrival, really incredible with that. And uh, yeah. Rob Lowe, who I just worked with on Candyman, same thing. Just really adept at m- modulating his voice or coming up with things compositionally. But, you know, a lot of the us who find ourselves in this producer sort of musician category, we're, we're good at manipulating sound, but we're, we're helpful with composition, too. And it's a real interstitial space that I think is available to people right now um, who are fairly experimental and it to me is a very exciting thing because I, I see a lot of people who would just be making sort of like random records that are amazing actually make really good money and, and be a part of really ambitious projects where they get resources they wouldn't normally have had. Right. You know, right. like definitely on Mandy, like that's the most resources I've ever had. And sure. it's the most I've gotten to experiment and work with Johan and learn things and be really experimental with a lot of stuff I had already been learning or working on, you know? Yeah. And same with this Candyman score that I produced with Rob. It's weird. It's really weird. Right. I don't remember the score from the original. I don't even remember what it was like. Philip Glass. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is nothing like that, actually. Sure. It's much weirder. I think more peculiar, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, for the sake of this conversation and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up. I mean, what do you, what kind of advice, like, do you, would you have for someone who is, and I'm not talking about how to get in and whose hands to shake and who to meet, yeah. but like actually sitting down, uh, what kind of functional advice would you have for someone getting ready to do some sound design, um, yeah. or soundtrack stuff? Yeah. I, I, um, get a really good lawyer. <laughs> no, that's the first thing I'd say. I would just say. It's, you know, it's a different world than music. The, the nature of working on the music is about more about translation than it is about satisfying your own musical needs. Yeah. Um, so you have to be able to surrender and sometimes have your heart broke because you were really attached to something. And, um, you know, I, I, I think I find it really fun and I'm a film head, you know, so I find yeah. it really fun. And really compelling. Um, I did want to mention something about uh, about uh, Midsummer. Actually, mm-hmm. um, that is a really unique score in the sense that a lot of Bobby's sound design is also intersecting with stuff that's not on the traditional soundtrack side, which was composed for the actors by Jessica Kinney. Wait, say, say that again. Um, there's Bobby's score that's kind of interwoven with a lot of the singing that the actors are doing. Right. Yeah, and a lot of the singing that the actors were doing, Bobby worked with Jessica on that stuff. Right. Um, I don't think a lot of people know that. And uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so there's there's kind of a two realities in that film, which is what I think is really beautiful, is that there's the score, but then there's the actual singing of the actors and the yeah. rituals that they're doing that I think um, Jessica had a big part in. And I think that's why that score works, is there's two two realities there's sort of this suspended belief reality um sonically and sound design and score design from bobby and then there's the actual physical singing from the actors that is in the film that i find also really compelling as part of that score you know or what you would think would be part of the score you know so 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that's a really great example of collaboration working really well and and wonderful, in, you know, in that context. So, um, I mean, Jessica's a master. It's ridiculous. It's yeah, she is. I, I mean, just every time I catch back up with hearing something she did, it's farther and farther and farther out of the world. <laughs> you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But she's, you know, I mean, that's I was basically saying that because. Again, it's another example of like a pretty um, experimental soul being a part of like a major industry like film. And there's a lot of opportunities for a lot of people who think multidimensionally about sound right now to be a part of these things. And I think that um, that is really exciting to me. That's sort of like, you know awesome and to have been a part of some of that stuff already is like really really satisfying and very yeah. very different than the work i've done with music and i i would say go for it there's a lot of people making short films there's more people making films than ever and a lot of those people are are fans of experimental music and they'll find you and you can find them and yeah. you know it's it's possible it's not out of the realm if you're doing anything interesting and creative with music you know so yeah it doesn't all pay crazy but but um but it's sometimes can be really rewarding helping a film get to where it needs to be yeah absolutely yeah all right well i think we did good here today man i appreciate you uh taking the time to sit down and talk and answer some questions i'll send you uh, you started i'll send you this shit yeah, send me the file. Uh, are you starting? You starting a, a session right now? Uh, no, I have to do a couple demo things for a film actually, and then what happened with that film with you? They just waiting on some money. All right, let me turn this mic off, and then we'll, we'll talk okay, about okay. it. Thank you, Randall. All right, hope that you guys enjoyed that. That was me and Randall Dunn. I, I adore Randall, and I really, really admire his work. Uh, all you, you can hear him immediately. As a producer, you know when you're listening to a Randall Dunn production, and he's really been at the board for a lot of my favorite music. Check him out and check out his new studio. Uh, this Monday, May 4th, send your questions. It's going to be me, and if I don't get good questions, I don't know. I might do some crazy shit. So send those to 5049records at gmail.com, and let's talk. All right. Uh, I'll talk to you guys soon. If you want to leave me a voicemail... Should I get... No. Uh, fuck. 